Jen, you and me. Us. <laughs> Doing an intro. <laughs> we don't get to do any intros, the two of us. I don't think we have, no. Well, I mean, we can if we want to. But We do control this. You are the podcast producer. You do get to decide. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been told. So you've been deemed. <laughs> this week's release, it's a big one, meaning it's a big conversation topic that I feel has taken a life all its own Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in and did not look at the episode title, (laughs) this is Burn It Down, live and in person with Mo Ryan, a discussion about her book that was released. June 6th. So it was two days after the festival. Yep. Um, Yep. Yeah. And the full title is Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a call for change in Hollywood, which is a, a good descriptor of what it is. Yes, yes, <laughs> of the book and uh, the conversation topic. Yeah, we were told about Mo's book many, many months before it came out because she contacted us and wanted to do something at the festival. Well, we we had done a conversation with her last year about toxic myths in Hollywood, and she uh, had been working on it then, and so she, yes, did let us know. In advance, that like it would likely be coming out around the time of the festival this time this year. Um, so yeah, I mean we we knew that it was in the works for a while and that it was maybe probably going to line up with this year's festival um, in some way. And then yeah, found out it was going to be a couple days after. So felt like a good time to continue the conversation. Yes, and I know it's something that I know Kate and I have talked to her about over the years. I mean, many years ago, we went to a lunch or a dinner with her and she started telling us about research that she was doing and conversations she was having. I don't think she knew that it was going to be a book at that point. I think maybe it was going to be an article or something that she wanted to write about. But then at some point, which I believe she talks about in this panel, starts doing deep dives realizes this is supposed to be a book mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of ground to cover a lot of ground to cover and lived in the thick of it for many years that i can't imagine yeah going this through. is a tough place to like sit like emotionally spiritually for that long so yes um yeah i don't think it's something that that most people could do but important that somebody does it so yep and uh, i'm very grateful for her to wanting to have one this conversation at the festival because we feel very strongly about voices being heard and that obviously we created the festival to be a very kind inclusive place and think that all workplaces should be like that and are very aware i mean we've all been following the news for our entire lives but also the past couple years like with the surgeons of me too and all of the information that is coming out that I think people knew, but we just didn't have concrete evidence of the past few years about the toxicity in Hollywood and knowing that we want always want to be a safe, inclusive place to have even tough conversations. And I'm so grateful to her to have invited Javi and Melinda to be part of this because I think that they are such positive beacons of light. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to have tough conversations with people that you know are strong leaders and that deeply care about the people around them is a great place to start. Yeah. I mean, I think these, uh, yeah, Javi and Melinda specifically, like, are are two people that were perfect for this conversation. And I mean, they also, you know, there was uh, an excerpt from the book that came out 
a few days before the festival that included them, both of them, and their experience working on Lost. Um, and I mean, I think it takes it takes a lot of bravery to to put your name to something like this, regardless, and then for them to be willing to come, you know, have the conversation with us in person with Mo, with an audience, you know, in such close proximity, like, I think uh, it shows, one, how much they trust Mo and, like, how thoughtful and considered she is with, you know, how how this conversation is had and continues and, I think, shows their their dedication to really making sure that things improve and that you do say the quiet part out loud and nothing's going to change until you do that, so... And I think you just said it, but I think it's a big thing to note that the festival was June 1st through 4th Mm -hmm. and started on Thursday on that Tuesday, Mm -hmm. as you just said, they basically released the whole chapter on Lost on Vanity Fair. Yeah. And so people knew about this book. They were aware of it. We were obviously promoting it as part of this conversation, but I don't think people understood what this book was going to be until this chapter came out and all of a sudden it was the headline of all of my social media feeds. And I think yours as well, of people reading this chapter, taking things out of it, having discussions around it. So this conversation, which was always going to be big and something we care deeply about, all of a sudden took center stage in a way that is good, but we didn't know was going to happen because this article, we didn't know this article was coming out until right before the festival. So it was an interesting shift and change, even for us to all of a sudden have this rise to the top of one of the most important conversations we were having, where it's always an important conversation, but it just had taken over a wider topic, a wider conversation than we knew was going to happen. Yeah. And I think, I mean, they do, they do discuss their, you know, the, the law stuff a bit. Um, I mean, the chapter is very in depth and, you should read that if you haven't. Um, but I think the bigger thing that Javi, Melinda, and Mo are all focused on in this conversation is that it is it is so much bigger than one show and one person. And it is a whole system of the way things have operated for so long that needs some deconstructing yes. or some burning down. Um, which, I mean, they cover they cover a lot of ground, but it really does get into bigger questions about like what is the responsibility and the ethics of like managing you know a production that is two three hundred people and like you're you are the boss of those people and like you're you are to some degree responsible for their well-being and creating a place where they feel safe and can learn and can thrive and can create something that's does go into the larger culture and like make an impact on people. And that can get very messy when the way a thing is made and the impact the thing has don't quite line up. Yes. Yeah. I just finished reading Evan Ross Katz's book, his Buffy book, as I call it, mm-hmm. uh, Into Every Generation a Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts. And uh, the thing that I love most about this book is, as we all know, if you don't know, you're about to find out, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is very important to me. The TV show. What? I know. Shocking. And I 
was one that held Joss Whedon on a pedestal. Like mm-hmm. he was the end all be all, everything that he did. Like he created Buffy. And there was something they even said that really resonated with me of just because you feel something from a piece of art doesn't mean that the person who made the art is what made you feel it. Like mm-hmm. when you're watching a piece of art, whatever that may be, you're bringing so much context in it. It's why some people, people respond to different things because there's so many things that you're also bringing into that. And the thing that I, this is almost contradictory what I'm about to say, but the thing that I really appreciated about this book is that it was able to help me separate Joss from Buffy and, uh, he is responsible for it, but there's so many more things that made Buffy what it is and not to then place all of those feelings on Sarah Michelle Geller because I don't believe she's problematic at all. I love her. Uh, but you know, if anything ever came out to anyone that we hold on she's a pedestal, a we got to be ready for <laughs> yeah, it. We all have major faults, but that the fact that she is able to say, I'm so proud of Buffy and I'm so proud of what Buffy stands for. And I'm so grateful to have been her makes it also easier to be like, no, Buffy can exist on its own and can mean all of those things to me. And it's, I mean, it's in the culture we live in right now with cancel culture. Like we all have to navigate it on our own and there's not a right or wrong way for anyone to figure out their feelings when someone they revere or a piece of art that you revere, you find out is complicated behind the scenes and there's not a right or wrong way to then respond to that everyone has to kind of figure it out for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, there's just a, there's just a lot of things to navigate when you are so emotionally attached to something and then the facade kind of falls away and you have to figure out how to kind of like reclaim that attachment and why you felt that way and what you got from that thing in a way that like realigns with, I I mean, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes you have to, just cut it out and and be done with it um but but i think i do think there are ways where especially for the people who worked on these things you know should be able to 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 claim their part in it and feel proud about what they did without it just being steeped in that one person or that you know that toxicity that may have existed behind the scenes. But yeah, Lost is, it can, can still be very meaningful to people. Um, you know, even, even if there are things that are problematic or upsetting about how it came to be. Um, and I think, you know, I hope that Melinda and Javi, both in telling their, you know, side of the story and having this conversation and, you know, talking to Mo. I hope that they have been able to reclaim some part of their contribution in it and feel good about that, that they, they were part of creating this thing that meant so much to so many people and still means a lot. Yes. Yes. I love one of the concepts that they talk about um, is the concept of being a servant leader. And I think that they, one, I think it's just ingrained in who they are, but I think a lot of times when you're in a bad situation that, you take away from it the person that you want to be. And as opposed to taking bad traits, you take the understanding of how you want to do things different and you put those in your job and whatever you do next. And I feel like Javi and Melinda both been on a lot of sets and mm-hmm. a number of those sets have been problematic and a number of those rooms, but they've also been on really great ones and they have decided, I am a leader. 
I am a showrunner. I am, how he calls himself, a, a number two. He's like the top number two on a lot of things, but they have decided what kind of leaders they want to be. And I just really appreciate the concept of like, they want to be the leaders that serve and are lifting other people up around them. And I think that's part of what makes them so special. And the more they can talk about it and point that out, I feel like the more other people, it resonates with other people about how they want to live their lives and jobs that are entertainment or not. Yeah. And they take the time to teach people those things as well. Like it's not, yes. just, they're not just yes modeling one way or this, you know, this way or that way. They're, I mean, Javi has an entire podcast like dedicated to teaching people sort of how to exist in this industry and be a better writer and be a better leader and, and all of these things. Um, he was also one of our pitch competition judges <laughs> and now he's going to help me with the pitch finalist and help get them to their next level and be part of mentoring. And I just am so appreciative of him. Yeah. They're, they're both so great. And yes. Um, yeah. Very glad that they trusted us and Mo enough to come yes. have this conversation. Yep. And I'm very grateful to Mo to bringing this to us and being brave enough to write it. It was a big risk on her part and to be able to come and talk to us about it and put this book out is very exciting. So with that, here is Burn It Down with Mo Ryan, Javier Grigio, Mark Swatch, and Melinda Shue Taylor. Hello. Get on up here. Javi, Javi Grigio Mark Swatch. Melinda Shue. I am Tara Ariano. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm Mo Ryan. Hi. How's everybody doing? Having a good fest so far? Yeah. Eating your body weight in tacos? That just, maybe that's just me. Um, my guests are two people who have been in the industry for about as long, I think, as I've been covering it systematically. And I've known Melinda for, I think, only a couple of years. Javier, I think we've known each other since dinosaurs and VHSs roamed the earth. Um, since dinosaurs used camcorders. <laughs> right? Pre-social media. How did that even work? We talked out of our faces with words. It's weird. Um, so because this is being recorded and, you know, people might look at this on the YouTube later and or on a podcast, I want to provide some context. Uh, this has been an interesting week. And um, I have a book coming out Here's a visual aid. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that for 40 minutes without pausing breath. No, I'm kidding. Um, a chapter from that book, a version of a chapter of that book, came out in Vanity Fair this week, and it was about the television program Lost. And uh, at different times, as we were just walking into the green room, I didn't know that Melinda and Javi, you don't really know each other. No, no. Did we meet at Renee's wedding, possibly? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we'd met socially before, but yeah. Yeah. 
So they were um, both, you know, kind of from different directions, sources for that story. And there were many other sources, too. And I've, I've, we've been talking about these matters, myself and, and people who worked on Lost for some years now. And part of the reason I wanted to write the book was to provide what I think is the most thorough and perhaps necessary version of things that occurred on that show, things that occurred on other shows, in pursuit of a goal of changing the industry for the better. And that's what my book is about. But I really just wanted to acknowledge the polar bear in the room <laughs> and open up by saying, we are all still processing things, including me. And I know that probably you are too and will be for some time. But I'd like to throw it open to both of you to address the past week in any way you feel you would like to. I'll just say that so many folks have reached out to me to express uh, gratitude and appreciation, but also just saying it's so helpful to me as a young person coming up the ranks or as somebody who experienced this kind of toxicity earlier in my career and I had to stay silent or somebody who is a person of color and didn't know how to talk about the microaggressions. It's so helpful to hear somebody say that happened. And that's really powerful. It's nourishing for me. And I receive it fully, as my friend Tian Richards says. Yeah, agreed. I think um, you know my my uh, history with Lost is is uh, extensive and uh, and very complicated. And uh, just knowing that again, like we'd only met socially before, just knowing that you talked in this book, talking to Monica Breen about her own testimony in the book and all that, it's really easy to um, I say become a citizen of Stockholm. Um, the weather's very nice in Stockholm. Um, and, uh, and I think that, I, that, that for me, my take on all of this had been that I had been weak, that I had not been able to cut it in a very competitive environment, and that it clearly must have been all my fault. So to suddenly see a lot of people coming forward and saying, we, we know your story, we have the same story. And I do know other people who have the same story because I was in that room, but it's not necessarily something that you know is ever going to be public or whatever. Um, it is incredibly um, validating, and it's the same. I've had the same experience of a lot of people being extraordinarily kind about speaking out, and I, uh, I, it's it's helped me quite a bit because this is not. It's really easy to think that this is a process of revenge or a vindication or something like that, and it so isn't. Like, no one's getting fixed from this. Um, what's going to happen is people will stop doing things like these, you know. Um, but we have we have the memories and the and and whatever scars we have, and that's just going to stay there, you know? I will add that on the picket lines for the strike, there's been a lot of talk among writers about what could we do differently, how can we do it better, how can we hold each other accountable, move forward, find pathways that really have some kind of repercussion, for lack of a better word, when this kind of behavior happens. And it's not about policing each other, it's really about setting a standard amongst ourselves and holding ourselves to that standard. Yeah, we're professionals, you know? And I think, and I think a lot of our problems... Uh, come from people, including ourselves, thinking that we don't have to be, or that we're not. You know, a lot of people think, well, TV, well, they're just, there are, they're, they're whatever, they're, they're just people who do this fun job for way too much money, and, you know, and have no job security, and whine a lot, and whatever. It's, it's, it is a professional job that requires a significant amount of on-the-job training, that requires a significant amount of people skills, that requires a significant amount of managerial acuity, and we need to put into our system, and it's one of the reasons we're striking, because 
the primitive system you had before that at least groomed people to become showrunners has ceased to exist. We need to teach each other how to be professionals and how to handle ourselves professionally so that all the drama goes on the screen instead of behind the scenes, you know? Yeah, and um, one thing that I've thought about a lot that really just came up for me this week is that I think this article would not have hit the same five years ago or even eight years ago or something like that. I think I participated in the buildup of the showrunner pedestal and I know why I did it and I think I did it from good reasons and I think a lot of people did it from really pure and enthusiastic reasons. And in large part that was because growing up, the cover of TV Guide was an actor. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe the Muppets or, you know, someone like that. You know, I don't even, I remember a time when the word showrunner wasn't a thing. It wasn't like, you didn't, I'm sure that in my 20s, I read articles maybe or teens where they talked to the executive producer or the creator of the show. But that wasn't the norm. And so I think a lot of people of my generation were like, People are doing ambitious, interesting things. The creativity on the screen is exploding. Let's talk to the architects of that revolution, you know? And I still get it. I think it's still justifiable, you know? But at the same time, culture in general, pop culture in particular, kind of has a hero worship model. And one, I cannot square this circle. If you're moved by something, you think that what moved you came from the people who made it. And what moved you is often a bittersweet or beautiful or hard or, you know, like you connect with it emotionally. And some of that emotional transference goes to the people who made it. And I don't know that that's a bad thing inherently. Do you know what I mean? But I think what happened was the system got the benefit of the doubt the people in the system got the benefit of the doubt. And what's happened over the last six years especially, there's always been good rigorous reporting on the industry. But what happened in the last five, six years much more systematically was, let's look closely at that pedestal and see what it's hiding or what's inside of it or under it. And there are often people under it being squashed. <laughs> and so... <clears throat> So what was heartening to me, that's the word I've been using a lot, was there, I personally didn't see a lot of minimizing of the experience. And what ended up in my inbox was people from other productions and other shows or management companies saying, I have experienced a similar, similar level of mistreatment and I'm really glad that we are not in this mode of, well, Me Too happened, reckonings happened, we fixed it, nailed it, everyone, moving on, all right. Um, we didn't fix it, you know. <clears throat> Super smart person who is in the room right now, Elena Smith, the creator of Dickinson, let's fangirl for a minute. Um, she just said to me, I'm gonna steal it, openly. Um, the changes in the industry when it comes to standards and norms of conduct changed five minutes ago. And everyone still in the system came up in a system that was wildly different. And so um, I'm gonna talk about a good time that Melinda made me cry. I was working on a story about someone who's 
I'm going to say it, Glenn Gordon Karen. And he departed the show Bull. And um, both Javi and Melinda worked for Glenn. Moonlighting is a foundational text for critics of my generation, for many fans. It's still an incredible accomplishment, I think. Um, but <clears throat> he ran a show called Medium. And I was working on a story about how he was running Bull. A lot of people at that show were very afraid. Uh, Melinda allowed me to use her name to speak to the conditions that she worked under at Bull. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but Medium, correct. And um, we were sort of doing that email chatting thing and she's like, oh, this might be of interest. Here's an email that I sent to a potential member of my writing staff about how the workplace would operate and what the norms and aspirations would be. And it made me cry because it was basically about, okay, here's the logistical nuts and bolts of how the job will work. And also here's how we will acknowledge that you are a human being. You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I now send that email to everybody who I offer a job or hire and bring onto the team, whether it's a writer or a director or an actor or a department head. And it talks about my managerial philosophy, essentially, which kind of breaks down into a few different things. One is kindness, which is kind of like the, just the essential idea that you are a person who has a life and actually you're a better writer if you go to your doctor's appointment or your kid's play or, you know, you take your cat to the vet. If you've got a life thing, please go do it. Don't sit here and white knuckle it, hope that I go to a lunch, you know, <laughs> go, be free. Develop your own thing. Like, I want people to have a life. I want, this came from the Atlanta Zoo. I could actually speak for a long time about my managerial, but in the goats zoo petting area, there were all these goats and these kids were like hitting them with brushes and screaming and jumping around. And I asked the goat manager, how do you keep them so calm, these goats? And she said, do you see that paddock over there? There's like a little gate. She said, anytime a goat wants to go relax, they hit their head against the gate and we let them through. No questions asked. And there are like a half a dozen goats sitting on bales of hay, chilling out, like staring into space. <laughs> she said, when they're ready, when they're ready, they come back. So every goat here wants to be here and knows it can leave any time. That's how I run the writer's room. I mean, that's just one of the things. But the other thing that I... I um, am that goat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, <laughs> the importance of being thanked, you know, just acknowledged for your work. There's a longer anecdote. But having people meaningfully connect to what they do really comes down to looking them in the eye and kind of going, uh-huh. Like, you <laughs> acknowledge that they did a thing that you asked them to do. If you say thank you, that's even better. If you learn their name... I gave a similar talk at the showrunner training program and I got a thank you note from one of the students. He said, I went to set and like you suggested, I learned everybody's name and I cannot tell you how Joanna the security guard lit up every morning when I said good morning to her. And so it's very meaningful to me to have that kind of like kind of spread it forward kind of thing. But the way that I closed that email, and I sincerely mean this with everybody who joins our team, I quote uh, the guy who wrote The Little Prince, and uh, he said, if you want to teach somebody to be a great shipbuilder, don't teach them to hammer a nail. Teach them to love the sea. And I say, Jesse, please join our team. I hope that being with us will increase your love of the sea. I know that having you with us will increase our love of the sea as well. And, you know, we talked about what we would talk about in this panel a lot. And I, you know, these folks not only worked at Lost and were part of that story, they're part of the change in the industry absolutely at the forefront of it. And 
that's so meaningful to me. They're both like Melinda, you're quoted throughout the book. You know, it was important to me, honestly, just not to rehash people's trauma. Like, you know, some people are only a voice in one chapter or one situation. And, you know, that's just sort of like the logistics of it. But I really wanted to speak to, you know, have people speak to what they've learned, what what they think needs to happen, what they have seen happen. Because the practical reality is some people are sociopaths and like to cause damage or cause what they think of, I think, as drama. Um, or are abusers in some way, and their awareness of what what they're doing can vary. But I think some people don't know how to lead, don't ha don't know how to learn how to lead. And a huge thing that I hammer on about in the book again and again, and this is certainly the juiciest, most news-making topic, the studios and the companies that own these productions where all of these bad things happen could provide meaningful guardrails, meaningful training, meaningful support and resources for crew, for leaders, for anyone in any kind of leadership position, whether you're head of the camera department or head of the entire production. And I think it's, it's piecemeal. It's not as bad as it was, but that's like saying, you know, fewer people got run over at this crosswalk this year. You know, I, it's not, it's, it's, you know, and I, I want to throw it to Javi for that reason, because seven years ago, you posted a document that I still think is more training than most people get called The 11 Laws of Showrunning, um, which speaks to something I think, at, you know, many things at length that needs to be speaking to, spoken to. But one of them is writers are weirdos. <laughs> you know, it, and they don't know how to lead like you don't stand up from your laptop and like well I, now i know how to lead 400 people who who does that look i think that there's two things one the interesting thing about the document and and it's it's probably going to be my biggest legacy beyond anything i've written for tv actually um same with the podcast that i do with jose molina which i have found out that a lot of people listen to and then people keep coming up to me and saying we listen to it and it was like so i'm beginning to think that some of that mentorship and education will probably outlast you know the couple of episodes of lost i wrote i hope uh, or at least have a bigger impact on the community and, and, and the culture. When I wrote that document, every single showrunner that I'd worked for up until then thought it was about them. They all thought it was a personal, vengeful... It was about me, though. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> to the point where one of them actually sat his assistant down with a Sharpie, not with a Sharpie, with a highlighter, and said, highlight everything in this that you think is about me, okay? This is the level of that we're talking about, okay? So, again, you know... The, the, the idea that this can be a professional vocation. You know, the, 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 the biggest problem with our industry is there's too many goddamn geniuses and not enough artisans, okay? Um, we need to be artisans. And, when, and I don't actually believe that there are geniuses. I think they're situational geniuses, okay? You sold the pilot, you're the genius for the next nine months. Great, you're a genius now. But you're not a genius in everything, you know? And you don't deserve any treatment different from anybody else. You still have to believe in the craft of everybody who's there. You have to believe that everybody who's working for you, with you, is an artist who is there to be told what to do and, and, to, and, and to be given the freedom to do it to the best of their ability. And the, 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 the biggest thing in, in, in that document is what I think is the simplest thing, and it's the one that it doesn't matter whether you're a good talker, a bad talker, gregarious or not, or whatever. The only thing that distinguishes a showrunner from any one of the showrunner's employees is that the showrunner knows what the show is. They have a nicer car. Uh, sometimes they do, yes. Uh, 
And uh, uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I drive a Volkswagen Beetle, but I'm not running a show, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> um, so no, so, so it's like, if you know what the show is, that's what made you the situational genius. Your job is to communicate that. There's a, and, and, and to communicate that concisely to everybody who needs to know it, and then so that they know what their job is. You should never leave a meeting without setting a goal. You know, there's just basic managerial principles, but what it all boils down to is that if you communicate to others with respect, you know, they will return the respect to you. And if you communicate to others exactly what you want, if they're not, and you do it in a way that is inspiring enough for them and you give them enough latitude to do their job, they might actually bring something back to you that is even better. Um, and, and look, at the end of the day, this is, this is a collaborative business, okay? We are all there to furnish, to, to, to get one person's vision off the ground, but we need to collaborate to do that. And the first collaborator has to be the person whose vision it is. It's not everybody collaborates for me. It's everybody has to collaborate with me and I have to collaborate with them to make this happen. And I think the moment we break, the moment we break that model of the genius and that has to be catered to that and, and really begin a culture of, there's a, there's a great delicatessen in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It is the greatest delicatessen in the world. New Yorkers don't like to hear this, I apologize. <laughs> it's called Zingerman's Deli. And the guy who runs that delicatessen is a guy named Ari Weinzweig. And he wrote a book called The Lapsed Anarchist Guide to Being a Great Leader and A Lapsed Anarchist Guide to Building a Great Business. If you want to know anything about shore running, read those two books, okay? His entire concept is that there, you have to be a leader servant, okay? You may be the leader, but you're actually in service of everybody there because your leadership is the service that you're providing. That requires information, that requires, the, 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 that requires uh, respect. Um, there's a great restaurant in Ann Arbor run by Zingerman's called The Roadhouse. The first time that I was ever there, and then the second and third time, um, this guy comes up to pick up my, my, my water glass and refill it, and it was Ari. Because part of his practice as this kind of leader is he actually tries to do all the jobs himself every once in a while, kind of not so undercover boss. And I respect the hell out of that. Now, we can't all do that as showrunners, but that is something that um, we should look at as a model. We need to be servants and leaders at the same time, not just people to be catered to. There's, a, there's a, a, an example of a show that I can give you in which uh, uh, the, uh, a new showrunner came in to do the show, right? And that person showed up, and the show was in crisis, and that person just showed up and introduced himself to nobody, gave no one a speech, did not get everybody together and say, hey, everybody, here's the state of the show today. I'm stepping in as the new showrunner. Here's what we're going to do. And it very quickly became obvious that this man who'd shown up in our offices and was bossing us all around all of a sudden, his management style was whoever figures out first that kissing my ass gets you access and information is who is going to rise in this establishment. And this person, and look, if that was my management style, I'd put everyone in a room and say, so here's what we're going to do, right? Because <laughs> at least he's communicating it to you, right? But obviously that doesn't feed that psychopathic mentality, right? Um, you need to be the opposite of that in, in, in every way. That's it. And you can disagree. I mean, one of the things I'm sort of preemptively saying, people are going to disagree on set. They're going to disagree in the writer's room. They're going to not agree on the artistic goal or the costume or they don't like a note or whatever. There's a way to do that that is healthy. And sometimes as a leader, you have to say, Melinda, I loved your suggestion. I'm going to tell you for me why it won't work and why the, for the story it won't work or we don't have an actor availability that day or whatever it is. And I'll be, you know, to the extent that I can, I'll be transparent and say this is why we can't do it if I can. 
And I find when you transparently tell people why something can't happen or they, you disagree with them, you know, then they are like, okay, well, you heard me out and you're in charge, so that's okay. And I, I think actually, Javi, you talk about this in the love and laws, sometimes people want to be nice. It's not nice to let people twist in the wind and guess what you're thinking. And I, and I think that that's a, it's a hard skill to learn how to be a constant communicator and a constant fire putter outer, which um, that's a hard thing to learn, but just people will respect you, I think, and feel hurt if they feel heard and not mistreated for expressing their professional opinion. Yeah, look, I think there's a re one of the things I point out in, in that document is there's a real difference between nice and affable, okay? Affable people, you have a conversation where you walk out, oh, what a nice person. I had a cigarette they're so They're so nice. They're not nice. They're affable. They're, they're, trying to not, they're trying to grease the skids, make the conversation go happily, and walk away without any, any scars, right? Nice is not necessarily that. A nice person actually tells you the truth. A nice person is somebody who and doesn't have to be brutally or cruelly, but a nice person is going to tell you the state of the state of play, regardless of whether it may be difficult to hear. And a nice person is somebody who is, um, uh, who who, who some, you know, not, uh, there are many definitions of nice, and some of them are way too. The Venn diagram is way too close to affable, but the one that I try to say that, that I always try to stick to is someone nice is somebody who tells you the truth in a palatable way and somebody who demands your attention that way. You know, that's nice, okay? Affable just means you try to get out of, out of, out of an uncomfortable conversation and let the other person walk away thinking you're, you're a good person, which you may not be. The word uncomfortable, I think, is really important whatever training we figure out for writers and writers' rooms going forward. A lot of writers are conflict avoidant or they're deeply introverted or they're passive aggressive or they don't have good communication skills around things that they actually need and want. And all of those come together to produce situations such as Showrunner doesn't like it when a couple of people speak up, and so the room stops meeting. You know, <laughs> or showrunner didn't really like the strip, but it was too much trouble to explain to the writer, like me, what I did wrong. And so the showrunner says, "Nice job." And then a couple of days later, a script comes out that's all revision marks, and there are none of my words, and I don't know what I could have done better, and no one has given me the tools to improve. So you end up being very disempowered. Right, and and then at the end, at the another part of that spectrum is, what was the model that you were supposed to aspire to you know i read difficult men i i think sopranos is an incredible accomplishment i don't think i personally would have wanted to work for david chase and that's some people didn't have a great time i, per, I I'm, this is just a personal statement i have no beef with david chase i just want to make that clear for the the twitters um i think he's an incredible artist i personally wouldn't have responded to the, what appeared to be the style of that workplace. Um, I think I think that conflict avoidant thing is huge, and I also think that the models that people grew up with or were, were shown, the word creativity was an umbrella term for creating a story or a performance or a costume or whatever. Yes, those actual creative acts, but also for bullying, selfishness, callousness, misuse of power. And I, I don't, we all know plenty of people who have succeeded and do drive those nice cars who decided I'm not gonna do that and they did okay. They, they seem to do okay. Um, but you know, someone tweeted the other day online and I can try to retweet it if people wanna 
be aware of it, but look at the timeline. Someone tweeted, who are the good showrunners? Because I'm super depressed. <laughs> and I was like, I feel you. I, I, like, that's my mental state 80% of the time. Um, and there were hundreds of, you know, quote, tweets or answers. And she said, tell me who the good showrunners are and tell me why they were good. This person sent every writer to set, to cover set. This person helped me with my samples. This per like, the examples were concrete. And that's what I really wanted to talk about in my book, too. There are people who are trying. Again, the studios and these gigantic multi-billion dollar companies have the money to th throw at these issues, much more money than they're throwing at it now. But people are trying, as a community and as individuals, to bridge the gap. And one of the big things of the strike, I wanted to get into the strike a little bit. There's many issues on the table, but one of them is what, what Javi just referred to. The apprentice, I'm gonna mess up the word, the learning system <laughs> that existed in the bad old days, or not bad, the mm, problematic old days, is gone. Yeah, it's gone. And, and look, a lot of that mentorship was not exactly positive. You know, I mean, it was... It was nope. But, you know, I, I told the story at another panel, you know, my, my first job, I, I wrote a script, the, the, the script was shot, and one day the executive producer comes to my office and says, go do, go do the cut. And I'm like, what do you mean go do the cut? He's like, go to the editing room and do a cut with the editor. And I'm like, well, I was okay, I've never done that. He's like, well, go figure it out. Um, and, you know, I sat with the editor and the editor schooled me on what they were doing. I'd obviously done editing before, I went to film school, but, you know, and, and we talked through it and, and that was a huge learning moment. Also, I had a, now a great relationship with that editor and a great sort of artistic communication with that editor. Um, when you run a show, you know, and, and, and a lot of showrunners say, well, that's not my job. Uh, you are a teacher. You are running a showrunning school. It doesn't matter whether you want to or not. You just are. If you don't want to, you're going to run a bad show running school, okay? <laughs> or if you don't acknowledge that, you're going to run a bad show right, running school. Right, you're running a school whether you know it or not. Exactly. Look, there's a saying among writers. Writers say, well, I don't get paid to write. I get, to, I get, I get paid to take notes, you know? <laughs> well, guess what? When you're a showrunner, you're not getting paid for your show. You're getting paid for everything you have to do to make that show happen. Your money is coming for, because you have to become a manager. You have to make sure this production goes off and you have to do all of that. None of that is writing. And none of that is your show. But that's what you're actually getting paid for. The show is your dream. You're getting paid and given the money to make the dream come true. And that has responsibilities attached to it. Okay? And uh, th that entire thing has vanished, uh, not vanished entirely, but now that writers only work for six months in a show and then get told to F off and never go to production, um, we have to build that into our contracts now. We have to rebuild the system where we are constantly involved in the, in the making of the show so we can learn how to do this so that future television actually expresses the, 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 that creative act as well as it can. I agree. I also think that, you know, it takes so much time to mentor somebody, and it's very difficult when you're in the grind of it. You know, you have to, like, grit your teeth and say, I'm going to spend an extra hour with the younger writer and go through the script bit by bit and say, this is why I changed this scene. This is how I feel like the voice, he should be more flippant here. He's in a good mood. Or he should be more earnest here. He's trying to prove himself. Or, you know, just, like, really specifically tell the writer why you're changing things, not just give them something back that's different and somehow, you know, sacred because your laptop was the last one it came out of, you know? But it's also, it's, I think, difficult for showrunners to ask for help, to express vulnerability, to say that I need more help doing X, Y, and Z. Because if you admit to the studio or the pod that is supervising you, I can't do it all myself because I'm not, you know, Athena sprung from the head of Zeus, then they'll be like, you 
also are thinking like, oh, are they going to replace me? Are they going to find somebody who can do it all themselves or pretend they can do it all themselves? So the fear that is kind of driving people results in some of this bad behavior because it just becomes expedient. So oh, I don't have time. I'm just going to do it myself. The irony of it is that the people who are more like, most likely to take the work off your hands are your writers, your writer producers. That's why they are getting paid. They're actually getting paid to take work off of your hands. And in apropos of rewrites specifically, one of, so I, I've been a number two on a lot of shows for the last few years. I've kind of become the number two to the world. I don't, that sounds dirty, but... What, what, uh, what Javi means by that yes. is... That should be a right tattoo. The right hand of the executive Essential, producer. Essential, yes. yeah. you know, kind of aide-de-camp. Yeah. I am often asked, but I'm often asked to rewrite younger writers. You know, the staff writer turned their draft. We need, we need, uh, uh, we need newer hands on this and all that. What I've started saying at this point is, look, don't give it to me to rewrite, Okay. Bring me in the staff writer, and we'll take the notes together, okay? And then the staff writer is actually going to start writing a day before me, okay? And I'm going to take their pages, and I will, re I will rewrite them as they get done with them. So the idea is that as the staff writer is doing the note, right, they can come to me and say, hey, what does that note mean? I can tell them, and if they don't get it, then when I get to my page... And that doesn't always work if you have like to do a rewrite in two days or whatever, but most well-run shows, you don't have to do a rewrite in two days. That's another thing. A lot of the time pressures that happen in television that showrunners... Uh, you know, showrunners like, oh, I'm so anxious, it's a war, I'm at war in the time. It's like, well, you know, maybe if you delegated more and you used your time more wisely and you actually managed your time, you might actually be able to do this job. Um, so so a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of the issues are self-inflicted uh, by the showrunners and their lack of managerial ability, their lack of, uh, or, or their surfeit of ego. But the way, so the way that, that this rewriting system works is that literally the staff writer, the most junior writer in the, pers in, in the show is now teamed up with somebody who's a 30-year veteran they're writing, they're just a day ahead of me, so they're literally giving me their pages. If I don't see what they, if I don't see what needed to be done, I'll do it, and then I'll go and tell them, here's what I did, here's the idea I had to fix the note. And I've done that about five times now with different writers, and it, it's always worked out really well. And, and the thing that it does is that it keeps the original writer involved and invested in the quality of the product. With the last thing you want is to work on it. I worked on a show once where, and, and, and so did you, um, where, the, where the, the, uh, um, what we did on that show, literally our joke in the writer's room was we write the scripts upon which the show is loosely based. <laughs> because our job was Wait, to, you worked on Mad Men? <laughs> our, our job was literally to write scripts that the, that the boss only hated enough to rewrite from page one. And that's, you know, you can make a lot of money working on that show. In fact, they had to pay some people a little bit extra to work on that show um, because the working conditions were legendarily difficult. Um, but what you're doing there is you're disenfranchising the people who are most likely to take the work off of your hands in the first place. And keeping everybody invested in the product is another job that so many showrunners don't do because they think if I keep other creatives invested in the product, then it's no longer going to be my act of genius. That's really true. Although I, you bring up a thing about the voices coming up the food chain or coming up the ranks. People ask me, was it difficult to go on the record for this article, for this book? And what I hold on to is that because I put my name out there, some people who are misbehaving now may think twice. And then somebody coming up the ranks now will not be scarred the way that we were scarred. And their voice will shine brighter. And that is helpful. Yeah, don't ask my wife about Lost. She, <laughs> she's heard a lot about it. Both my wives. Uh, I don't have two now. The, the first one and the second one. Anyway, the, the point being, don't ask anybody who knows me about my family Again, about my feelings about Lost. Sequence. They've all heard it. <laughs> two wives. Yeah. When will much. my husband Dave get a panel to talk about what he's put up with <laughs> in the last few years? 
Yeah, no, like it's it, it, moving the needle on this stuff is really hard because the norms are entrenched, they're embedded, they're embedded in ideas that we aspire to, that we on a on a sort of theoretical basis I've devoted my adult life to celebrating creativity as expressed through the commercial entertainment entities of the American entertainment industry. I, I, did, I did I mess up? Did I, what, what did I do? Um, but you know, I often talk to people in the industry about another thing that is a cost, not just being subjected to the you know, misconduct, abuse, bad management, all of it, witnessing it, witnessing it, and feeling bad that, you know, and, and I, look, everyone wrestles with complicity. I do. I certainly do. But the way to move the needle is to say to those people, I think, one of the ways, okay, we all messed up. I must, I think there's some, you know, I have regrets. We know what we know now. How can we act on that and build on that? And I actually think what applies to the strike is what applies to my reporting. In community, change is made. And it really kind of makes me, you see the flames on the side of my face? What makes me very mad is when, I mean, essentially, I think these gigantic entertainment firms are outsourcing change in the industry to the people in the trenches. And at the same time, they are turning actual showrunners into gig workers. I mean, I've, how many times, and I, we don't have time to get into it in a deep way probably because we're running out of time, but the IP chapter, look, Battlestar Galactica, my favorite show of all time. Sorry, lost. Um, <laughs> but, and so I'm not like, yeah, IP bad, but they are trying to just churn out IP plays with one interchangeable writer that writes all the scripts and, or does all the work with not enough help, not enough support. And I hear horror stories about, well, there was a mini room and that person had help churning out scripts for like two months. Mm -hmm. But then in production and in post, that showrunner, which we kind of regard it in our heads, I do, as a power, a power position, is essentially just a one-person show covering set or fired by then or let go by then. Someone else is just churning out rewrites on the spot. Or they are shouldering much more of the burden solo. And you might think, oh, it was only a six-episode season or eight-episode season. If you are in production and in post by yourself, more or less, that's a really great way to destroy someone's physical and mental health. Do you, am I am I talking no, yeah, yeah. wrong? That's true. I would say you know the market pressures from the studio and the corporate side are always going to be how much money can we squeeze out of a thing for the least money that we put into it, and that's just what capitalism does. And the union is just saying, well, we get that, but we're in a union, so we're going to say no. It's also it's also you know the, the the interesting thing for me is is I can make the most mercenary capitalistic argument for why they should give everything to the WGA that we're asking for. And it literally is in their best interest. Give it okay. to David Zaslav. Let's well, here be it is. real. David. I'm kidding. I stand for with the WGA. For 50 years, for 50 years, American television held a global cultural hegemony. That means that you made a lot of money. Okay? Global cultural hegemony means a lot of money. 
most viewed show in, in the world was CSI Miami, right? Why was that, right? Because American television, for good and bad, for problematic and for benefit, um, trained scores of writers to write these dramas that basically all of them had a teaser, four acts, they all built up to four climaxes per hour so that they remained interesting, right? And there was an entire sort of uh, apprentice to master wheel that anybody who went into the system had to go through. And that's how, if you want to know why there was a golden age of television in the early aughts, look at everybody coming up in the 90s and 80s because that's when that writer's room system really, really began to bloom, okay? And so if you want great television that's going to captivate the world, that's going to actually generate the kinds of profits you want, don't dismantle the system that educates the professionals who make it. Counterpoint. An AI could do it. <laughs> I'm told. Um, yeah, we did that one. I'm not going to go there. I'm actually going to move on um, and pivot to... Um, I want to give the floor to Melinda again. We're, we're wrapping up soon. Um, I want to, to, to ask you to talk about something close to your heart, the Sarah Jones Foundation. Thank you for bringing up Sarah Jones. Sarah Jones was a young camera woman who was killed needlessly in an accident on a film set, an indie film set, mind you. This wasn't a studio production, but the, yeah. Um, the filmmaker had decided that he would go film on an active train track without getting a permit. And they loaded a metal hospital bed onto a train trestle that was pretty narrow on a bridge over a river. Didn't have anybody posted, didn't have walkie-talkies, didn't have anybody even telling the train company that this was happening. And a train came, the crew was trying to get off of the bridge, but the only way off the bridge was to run towards an oncoming train. And Sarah was carrying camera equipment, everybody was scrambling, the metal bed went flying. She was struck and killed. And I was on the Vampire Diaries at that time, and the shockwave from that, the Safety for Sarah campaign came out of our dit tent on set. People were pouring in messages of support and pictures and slates, and we all went to her memorial, and I thought it wouldn't be right for this wonderful person who everybody loved. I didn't know her myself personally. I met her once, she was great. But I um, became friends with her parents after the memorial, and I was certainly friends with all of her closest friends on the crew. And I asked Julie Pleck, who's a fantastic person and leader, and was incredibly supportive of this. So was Warner Brothers, so was local 600 cinematographers. And I said, could we do like a walkathon or something, you know, in the fall to um, remember Sarah in a joyful way? Would have been her birthday. And raise some money for a program. So we started to generate these grassroots uh, efforts. One is the Safety for Sarah just like t-shirts and awareness, you know, the slates and just being aware that you could, if you want, as an AD, call the first shot of the day the Jonesy. So that everybody right after the safety meeting thinks about, okay, let's look out for each other. If you see something that doesn't feel right to you, let's just take a second. Let's take 60 seconds and talk about it. And so that everybody understands. And if it's not safe, let's not do it. And then um, we have also the safety grants for our students where you can apply. It's $2,500. Just go to safetyforsarah.com. And um, it has to be money used for safety purposes on set. For instance, walkie-talkies, permits, a stunt coordinator, a first aid kit, a police person to, you know, be on the street corner like you're supposed to have. Things that students and indie filmmakers cut corners on, we want to change the culture again to make them essential to make them not luxuries, not something that a studio pays for, something that you need as much as you need a camera or a costume or a prop or an actor. And then uh, we're now kind of trying to reinstate the Sarah Jones Opportunity. It's a program for camera trainees. We're just getting that going um, in Georgia. It's kind of where it's sourced out of, but I'm hopeful that it'll come back to life and, and be great on the other side of the strike. Thank you. Oh, 
But, thanks, Paul. But, uh, but part of that is not just physical safety, which is paramount, but also emotional safety, psychological safety. We had um, an incident on a show I was on, and I found out that somebody on the crew had been bullying other members of the crew, and I immediately benched this person, and I was dismayed that it had gone on for a while, that you know people had been hiding it because they were trying to fix it internally. And there comes a point when you have to tell people that this is going on, and especially, you know, I'm sending this email about I care about you and stuff, and I was like, you're making me a liar, folks. And I got on the walkies with the crew after I had benched this person, and I said, this is what happened, this is why I did it, I am sorry that it took so long, and I know that it impacted you, and I just want to acknowledge that, but this is what I did about it. So, you know, it's super important, all the way back to the article, to say, this happened, so. No, I, I think that that's, that's really what people want to hear. The only way people know that they can speak up is if they speak up and it doesn't come back on them in a terrible way. And so that's not the norm. So struck by lightning or shot trying to escape, you'll, you know. Struck by <laughs> lightning. Why did we go there? Um, I, I know we have to wrap up, but what I want to say is there's actually a section on my book. I'm just going to bring the room down for the big finish. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's kind of my thing. Um, there is a section in the book about injuries and deaths on set. And so in addition to the emotional health and mental health of people, the people that make our entertainment are risking their lives. They are injured. In those, I, don't, I do rely on stats a fair bit, but in the past decade, from my look at the literature and the coverage, the amount of TV has exploded the a number of injuries and deaths to me anecdotally looks to be larger. So that's why we fight. That's why I'm fighting with this book. I, I, like, I cried a lot writing this book. That's why they fight. And I, you know, that's why peop many people are fighting. Because this is quite literally life and death. It is ruining or injuring people's sanity, their physical health, their mental health, their careers. I'm not done fighting, so I just want to tell you that, and I'm really glad that these folks and that you all are with us. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.